Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. Why do the first steps of a Reformed Mariology begin with the scriptures rather than tradition? Good day. I'm Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome you back to Greystone Conversations today for episode number 28. Today's episode is the second study in a series delivered in London called Rescuing Mary from Rome, the Virgin in Scripture, Theology, and the Church. It is that time of year when uh, even the most diehard of evangelicals and Protestants have Mary very much on the mind. And so we thought it would be a good time to explore Mary and the Old Testament together. In this second lecture of five, the perhaps surprising observation is raised that Roman Catholic Mariology is rooted not only in tradition, but also in a reading of the Bible. In particular, the reading of the familiar Marian passages in the Gospels against the background of, and with a view to, the entire canon of Holy Scripture. In other words, many distinctively Mariological themes that we recognize as Roman Catholic draw not from the Gospels exclusively and not from post-biblical tradition exclusively, but from a variety of Old Testament figures, teachings, narratives, and themes that have long been recognized by Roman Catholics and Protestants alike as belonging to the Gospel portraits of Mary. All that said, this series aims to demonstrate not only that certain Roman Catholic Mariological themes are rooted in one way or another in legitimate scriptural motifs, but that the legitimate connections between the Old Testament and Mary are in fact misused and distorted in Roman Catholic teaching, and that this happens by way of what is here called a leap. The leap from those legitimate connections that are there in the Bible between Mary and the Old Testament, a leap from those legitimate connections to the illegitimate Roman Catholic Mariological conclusions. This leap amounts, in short, to an ascription to Mary of what belongs by way of Mary and other biblical figures to the Church, or the eschatological kingdom of God. The Roman Catholic Church traditionally places this relationship in reverse, so that the churchly and kingdom figures found throughout Scripture resolve in some way in Mary herself, rather than the other way around, in which the biblical motifs that do converge in Mary give way to a greater convergence in the truth of the glorified and consummated church, the body of Jesus Christ, the motherly city bride, described as the kingdom of God in glory in the book of Revelation. A curious feature in all this, the story of Mary and the Old Testament, is that many evangelicals, 
wanting to reject Roman Catholic Mariology as strongly and as visibly as possible, tend to suspend the Old Testament hermeneutic that they are quite happy to deploy for many other topics and themes when it comes to Mary. Many readers of the Bible argue quite strenuously, for instance, for the Old Testament roots of infant baptism, church government, and certain aspects of the atonement, all quite rightly, I add, but either deny or altogether overlook arguably stronger or at least more visible Old Testament roots for Mary's unique role in salvation history. The fear appears to be that to recognize the Old Testament backdrop and deep roots for what the Bible says about Mary leads inevitably to Roman Catholicism, and this series is designed to explain why that is not the case. Now, this concern and this overlooking of Mary in relationship to salvation history and in relationship to the church may be due to our unfortunate decision to allow our polemic against the real dangers of Roman Catholic Mariology to set the terms for what a biblical Mariology can include. But this is not always how the Church, even the Protestant and Reformed Church, has approached the question of Mary, and the reality may be both surprising and richly edifying. To see how this might be the case, yes, you'll have to listen to the series as a whole, but I trust this one selection, which we are including as today's episode, may provide at least a glimpse into what is involved. Before we move right into that presentation, let me also mention that at greystoneconnect.org, where you can find this series called Rescuing Mary from Rome, you'll find many other offerings, full courses, short-form courses, special lectures, postgraduate seminar presentations, and more, available for Greystone members. The Greystone membership not only gives you access to everything at greystoneconnect.org and all of our uh, upcoming courses and events as well as they are made available there, but also helps fund our provision of free resources to churches and church leaders in parts of the world where uh, the resources are scarce and the need is great. At greystoneconnect.org, you'll also learn about a new group study option that we're able to feature and to make available for you where you can pursue a Greystone course or a micro course or a series with your friends, with fellow church leaders, with ministerial trainees, with fellow students, with fellow faculty members. You can form a group of your own, and that group can include those who are not Greystone members, and we're hopeful that this will be an attractive option and a useful one for many. If you go to greystoneconnect.org, you'll also see three new introductory videos. They're all very brief that explain the membership, the group study option, and the overall concerns and aims of the Greystone Connect platform. Finally, let me mention that because we are near the end of the year now, Greystone does indeed depend a great deal on your generosity in supporting the work of the Institute, not only here in Western Pennsylvania and in the United States, but in many parts of the world where many brethren have come to depend upon the resources Greystone provides. To be sure, this has been a hard year for many when it comes to finding any extra funds to direct toward even the most worthy causes. 
But if, as you reflect on what you might be able to do at the end of this calendar year, you do think of Greystone, we would certainly be very grateful for that and would love to talk with you more about perhaps a small monthly contribution or one-time gift that you could begin right away. You'll find out how to do so if you go to our website, greystoneinstitute.org, and go to the support button, or you can reach out to us by email at info at greystoneinstitute.org, and we would be delighted to have a chat with you about how we can enlist your support and forge a friendship with you as part of the growing network of Greystone friends across the world. Thank you once again for spending some time with us today to reflect together on the shape and direction of greater faithfulness to our triune God. And now let us turn to episode number 28 of Greystone Conversations. What I want to alert us to is a possibility, and this is something I'm, I'm still working out as well, is that the illegitimacy of that leap, the, the big problem, if you will, with classic Roman Catholic Mariology, the big problem in that leap is a problem of limiting to Mary or identifying as Mariological what the scriptures are in fact saying by way of Mary about the church. On the one hand, that actually keeps Mary in place, biblically, as important, uh, as a figure in her own way of things being revealed by way of Mary's special role. And we'll, we'll explore in what way we should understand it as special. But it's also keeping us sensitive to the fact that there is something being communicated by way of Mary regarding the church, which unless we take that step theologically, results in a distortion not only of Mary, but of the church and our understanding of the church. Why might we suggest this is the case? I'm going to continue to go there every time we get to the leap part of the Roman Catholic dogma and ask, what difference would it make for us if noticing all these things biblically that we've seen them pointing out to us, what difference would it make if instead of going the Mary route at the end, we were to have an enriched theology of the church as a result along these lines? And is there a biblical warrant for doing that instead of the Mariological turn? If you have a Bible, please look with me, if you would, briefly in Luke's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel and chapter 11. I thought of this just yesterday as maybe one helpful way of focusing what we want to argue and to say today. Luke's Gospel and chapter 11. This seems like a wonderfully relevant and useful brief passage, right on point, in fact. Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, first of all, verse 27. As he, that is Jesus, said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Speaking of whom? Mary. Mary would be the one who's done this. And then verse 28, Jesus' response to that. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay, now it's easy for us to misunderstand the transition and the argument here that the rather is a denial of what is being said in verse 27. No, she's not blessed. It's, we, we might read Jesus as saying, no, she's not blessed for having borne you. She's not blessed for having this special role with you individually. 
Why can we be confident that would be a misunderstanding? Well, in the very same gospel, Luke's gospel, in chapter 1, it's the Holy Spirit who speaks through Elizabeth to say, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. No question that even the Holy Spirit believes Mary to be blessed with this vocation she has, this special privilege she has. So no question of whether or not she enjoys these blessings. But when the crowd wants to bless Mary for it, and that's their reaction to what Jesus is doing, Jesus says, no. The, the really blessed one is not Mary. But then who is being described in verse 28? As the ones who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, elsewhere in the Gospels, this is how Jesus characterizes his disciples, right? His, you are my disciple of hearing my word, you keep it, you follow it's a way of characterizing the church. If we were to pause over this, this one passage uh, with a view to the canonical whole, uh, it may go a long way to helping us think in a way that is not reactionary in either direction about how, uh, if you will, a properly reformed, reconfigured Mariology, a real theology of Mary might look um, in a way that's faithful to uh, her actual place. So I want to commend that to you as a possibility on our way in. Now, with respect to Mary and biblical hermeneutics, here are some features of the relationship of Mary and biblical interpretation. A lot of Roman Catholics have a lot of impatience with evangelicals over Mary for one simple and consistent reason. And that is that many evangelicals, and many is the case, it is very many, easily found. Maybe eight out of ten books you find on Mary written by evangelicals have this. But most, most and many evangelical treatments of Roman Catholic Mariology assume as a matter of course that everything the Bible really has to say about Mary, it says in the little places in Matthew and in Luke where her story is told. And maybe, yes, in John's Gospel, there's a reference to her that's important. She's at the cross, after all, and, and so she has a role to play like other disciples do, maybe not as prominent as they do in many cases. But when we're talking about the Bible and Mary, we're really only talking about Matthew, Luke, and a couple other places. And Roman Catholics have a lot of impatience with that, not so much because those passages are not important. Of course they are. But because evangelicals on a Roman Catholic position are simply not asking the question, is it possible that like so many other New Testament teachings, what is being said about Mary is drawing from the Old Testament? In other words, that when the Gospels take the time and space that they do in what would otherwise be a very curious decision to spend so much time, give her so much place in the infancy narratives and birth narratives, that they may be doing this as part of telling the story of the Old Testament's fulfillment in the context of Jesus' birth, which involves Mary having a role that we will best understand if we locate it against that Old Testament backdrop, uh, backdrop or background. Does the Old Testament have nothing to contribute to how we read Matthew 1 and Luke 1? If it's the case that it has nothing to tell us, it would be unique in the New Testament. And we derive a great deal of other biblical teaching from the New Testament precisely by way of recognizing how the New Testament is using and reading and interacting with the Old. Why would this be any different? And yet, over and over and over again, many evangelicals 
think Mary is only in the New Testament Gospels and that if you can deal with those texts and pull them apart and see if you find any Mariological dogma like the popes have pronounced, and if you don't find it in Matthew and Luke, then you have definitively established it's not biblical. And they throw up their hands and think, well, what kind of Bible are we dealing with anyway? And in terms that are not unfamiliar to us, because we do the same thing when we're debating among ourselves about particular you know, covenantal or other themes in, in theology, and we say, of course, the whole Bible needs to be brought into the picture as we're thinking about any one part of it. And so this is one of uh, a common frustration found out there. So it's an issue of the New Testament's relationship to the Old Testament. It's also important for us to appreciate this because of what the actual sources are for Roman Catholic Mariology. I suggested already the driving force of lay piety and lay worship, and most evangelicals and Protestants recognize that to be a huge part of the picture. But then most Protestants conclude that ultimately tradition is the mover and player here. Tradition is really what accounts for Mariology. This is an example, maybe example par excellence, it's assumed, of Roman Catholics developing dogma on the basis of ideas that emerge after the New Testament writings and in the history of the church. It's constructed entirely of purely traditional, in the extra-biblical sense, traditional materials. In fact, and there's nothing new about this, but in fact, Scripture has long been used, not only seen as, but used as the source for Roman Catholic Mariology. And this is the historic reality. It's not unique to Roman Catholicism, but the church historically, from the patristic era forward, has developed its continuing developing understanding of Mary theologically with a view to biblical materials. And it may be surprising for us to discover that they would think any of these things have biblical roots. But we'll, again, try to figure out, try to learn along the way what that looks like. So it's a scripture and tradition question for us as well. In other words, it's touching on questions of hermeneutics that are of continuing and enduring importance. Things the church continues to wrestle with. How to relate scripture and tradition. In what way is tradition biblical? How can scripture function as tradition? What is the relationship between these two realities? What should be understood as a proper source for a theological conclusion? And how does that work? Ultimately, the question is, what does it mean to say that something is biblical? If we come to the texts thinking that to be biblical, we have to do a word search for the word in question, or check our concordance for all the times something is specifically mentioned, or that we work on the basis of that surface level of the text alone, and at the level of grammar and maybe historical archaeological context, uh, determine what we think the meaning is. And unless we find the issue in question at that surface level, it's not biblical, then we're in a great deal of trouble. And it has nothing to do with Mary, because then we've lost the doctrine of the Trinity. We've lost classical understandings of the person and work of Jesus Christ, none of which you're going to find or conclude based on a word search or concordance search. But instead, the way the New Testament writers preached Christ from the old, it means listening to the text, listening to Holy Scripture, with an eye to its consonance, to its unified message in all of its diversity. And the pressure the text already on its own terms exerts upon us 
to say what we do about God, about Christ, about the church, and so on. Seeing the scriptures as the living and continuing work of God in its historic, inspired, inerrant form, but the continuing vehicle for the living God to shape us means that the Spirit uses scripture and by scripture exerts pressure on us to say yes, to recognize the consequences of these things for identifying faithfully the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we mean by the language of something being biblical is very much the question in all of these themes. Now, I'd like us to turn our attention to the first of of Roman Catholic examples of concern on these fronts. This is from Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who was Pope Benedict XVI, became Pope Benedict XVI. This is from his book, which in my mind is one of two, there are a number of books that qualify, but one of two books that I think are especially helpful by Roman Catholics for dealing with the biblical texts and biblical materials in a Mariological context. Those who are willing to do the serious work biblically to explore their Mariology. Many other books out there do the historical and traditional investigations that are helpful in those contexts. But here are two that are helpful in engaging biblical material. The first is by Ratzinger or Benedict XVI, and it's called Daughter Zion. It's one of several publications by this pope, but this is an especially interesting one. Daughter Zion, subtitled Meditations on the Church's Marian Belief. Note the following quote from this book. This is Benedict speaking. If one begins by reading backwards or more precisely, from the end to the beginning, that is of the Bible, it becomes obvious that the image of Mary in the New Testament is woven entirely of Old Testament threads. In this reading, two or even three major strands of tradition can be clearly distinguished which were used to express the mystery of Mary. First, The portrait of Mary includes the likeness of the great mothers of the Old Testament, Sarah, and especially Hannah, the mother of Samuel. In other words, he's saying, looking closely at how the Bible describes Mary in the New Testament shows that it is pulling from the descriptions in the Old Testament of Sarah and Hannah to say what it's saying about Mary in the New. And that's something Protestants have long recognized as well. Second, Into that portrait is woven the whole theology of daughter Zion, in which, above all, the prophets announce the mystery of election and covenant, the mystery of God's love for Israel. So now, taking a step further back from the specific figures, the matriarchs, people like Sarah, we'll talk about Rachel, um, Hannah, a step back into the later stage of Old Testament revelation where Eve and the matriarchs function in a prophetic, often sermonic, and often just straightforward theological commendation of the daughter Zion figure, the mother Jerusalem figure, the city who is a bride, the city who is a mother, the very figure for the Eve who is not only individual, but kind of representative of a, of a whole environment and order, the city, the people of God even conceived of in these feminine terms, Lady Zion, Mother Jerusalem. So stepping back from the individual stories of the matriarchs into this daughter Zion figure, we see that this figure too seems to find expression in the way Mary is described in Matthew and Luke. A third strand, he says, can perhaps be identified in the Gospel of John. 
the figure of Eve. The woman par excellence is borrowed to interpret Mary. On to the next page. He continues, All consequent Marian piety and theology is fundamentally based upon the Old Testament's deeply anchored theology of woman, a theology indispensable to its entire structure. Contrary to a widespread prejudice, the figure of woman occupies an irreplaceable place in the overall texture of Old Testament faith and piety. And this is something uh, I've been working on separately, well, actually related to this for some time as well, the place of the feminine in scripture, the figure of woman theologically in the Bible, Eve in Genesis, straight through uh, the image of Revelation 21 and 22 of the church in her final glorified state. But note for a moment that image. That's the image of whom? Of the church in her final glorified state, described as what? The the bridal mother. Um, Your final state, your glorified condition, as a man or as a woman, is as you belong to this communal reality, which is at once a glorified city, the New Jerusalem, and the glorified Eve, the woman who is bridal mother, who is, as you you might remember from the last study day I was here for, who is the Levitical woman in her glorified resurrection state, from whose center, we read in Revelation, flows the waters of life, the living waters, which bring healing and bring vigor and so on. That image of the church's final state, I'm suggesting, needs to be given greater, greater weight within Roman Catholic thinking about Mariology because I think it pushes us not to Mary, but to understanding that what we're reading about in Mary and discovering in Mary is telling us something important about who the church is. Now, the other example, in addition to Benedict, the other example of a Roman Catholic author is far more recent. It's Brent Petre, who's done some other work as a Roman Catholic apologist. He's a biblical scholar, trained in biblical scholarship. He's a biblical scholar who writes to a general audience as an apologist for Roman Catholicism. And he's written a book on the Mass, for instance, uh, along these lines, um, trying to root it in the, in the biblical uh, passages rather than just in tradition. And he does very much the same thing with Mary in this book called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. In my judgment, Protestants and particularly Reformed Christians who want to deal seriously with the Mary question need to deal seriously not just with what Petra himself does in this book, but the literature he's referring to all the way through. Again, this is a more general audience book, popular level but he's interacting and summarizing a lot of pretty substantial scholarship out there. And one of the helpful things about Petra's book is not only is he preoccupied with biblical material, but he includes in his uh, discussion of each theme, and I'm taking each of the six themes that we're covering from Petra. These are the six he looks at. He brings into the picture Protestants, and many times evangelicals, who are saying the same things Roman Catholics say about these passages concerning Mary, but who deny the Roman Catholic conclusion regarding um, Mary in these passages. So he's providing evidence of the fact that you don't have to be a Roman Catholic to see these things happening in the text, but he's also saying you do need to be Roman Catholic to reach our conclusion, and of course that's where we have our concerns. Here's what Brant Petra says in pages 10 and 11. Most important of all, I discovered that ancient Christians got their beliefs about Mary from the Old Testament, 
not just the New Testament. In fact, the key to understanding what the Bible teaches about Mary can be found in what is called typology, the study of Old Testament prefigurations or types and their New Testament fulfillments. Eventually, it dawned on me, that is, that the reason I had begun to consider Catholic beliefs about Mary unbiblical was that I was not paying enough attention to the Old Testament. And it wasn't just me. The more I read, the more I began to notice that virtually every book on Mary that rejected her sinlessness, perpetual virginity, bodily assumption, and other, that is, Roman Catholic beliefs as unscriptural, would invariably ignore the Old Testament. So this is how he's coming at his argument, reflecting what I was also saying is the case. Now here's, on the next page, an example of um, an evangelical, a Protestant, Timothy George. And it's someone that Petra refers to. Here's Timothy George. Evangelicals have much to learn from reading Mary against the background of Old Testament foreshadowings. The image of Mary in the New Testament is inseparable from its Old Testament antecedents, without which we are left not with not only a reductionist view of Mary, but also of Christ. And in fact, that relationship is something we want to keep uh, in mind throughout our reflection. Mary and Christ in relationship. And then here's one that may be a little more surprising. J. Gresham Machen. J. Gresham Machen, uh, of course, the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary and one of the leading figures in the formation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, never confused with theological liberalism, far from it, uh, a staunch defender of orthodoxy. Uh, In 1930, he wrote his book called The Virgin Birth of Christ, specifically with a view to dismantling the rejection of the virgin birth on the part of higher critics in his day. The book is a very dense scholarly treatment of the question. It remains a powerful statement of orthodoxy. It's it's excellent in many ways. It's dated in many respects, but remains uh, very valuable. Um, This book, I I noted uh, as soon as I opened it, is dedicated to his mother, uh, which is very fitting for the theme of the book as Mary. But in the preface where he's just talking about a new edition and reflecting on the reception of the first printing, he says this, and I think in a way that might remind us that what we sometimes hear or, or think is the only appropriate Protestant way of handling Roman Catholicism may not be the whole story. This is on how his book was received by Roman Catholics. Before this statement, he has just referred to Roman Catholics saying that Protestantism is waning, it's dying, they, they are not showing the best of scholarship, and, and so on. And so Machen follows that up by saying, but if he, that is speaking of himself as the author, if he disagrees with what these writers say about Protestantism, that it's on its way out, He agrees to the full with their high estimate of the Roman Catholic Church. That already may surprise us a little bit. And he rejoices greatly in the important contributions made by Roman Catholic scholars to the subject dealt with in the present book. Machen found what very many do find. And this is especially true when it comes to gender, which is the next example we'll point to. It is unfortunate. It ought not to be the case. I'll just put it that way, very directly. But it is the case all the same that many, not all, but many of the most compelling and careful biblical as well as historical and theological studies 
done on the virgin birth, done on Mary, done on gender, done on sexuality, male and female, are done by Roman Catholics, not Protestants. Yes, there are exceptions. There are some really valuable works that have been done. But on the whole, there is no way around it. The best quality work done tends to be done by Roman Catholics. Machen found this as well, and he was researching his book on the virgin birth. You want to get the best scholarship on the question? There's one context where you look for it. Again, it's not uniformly the case. There are great examples of Protestant scholarship, but there need to be far more. Um, and in part, the reason why pro- Roman Catholic scholarship tends to be so much better, more responsible, more informed, is because they don't suffer the same the same difficulties in reading the Bible a certain way that many Protestants do. They suffer other difficulties. They suffer other challenges. They have other blind spots. But they don't need to be persuaded to read a passage of the Bible in terms of the canon as a whole, to look for how the New Testament is reading the Old and even the later Old Testament reading the earlier Old Testament. Uh, They have an eye for that that reflects the way the church has read the Bible for 2,000 years. So that's already their default disposition. They have other blind spots. They bring into the picture um, aspects of the Christian tradition and treat it as though it has canonical authority when it doesn't. And it clouds their reading. It clouds their judgment. And there are other problems with their reading. But what most scholars find who are working in these areas is that that's where you want to start looking for solid scholarship. When it comes to the gender question, it's particularly the case. Look at the next section, for instance, Again, the Mary question is also a way into the gender question. Sister Mary Prudence Allen, a Roman Catholic author, who in the last year and a half, maybe two years ago, finished the third volume in her three-volume, enormously valuable, carefully researched, scholarly trilogy on gender called The Concept of Woman. Three volumes of dealing with the, the, the entire range of the history of Christian philosophy and theology from the ancients forward, including uh, non-Christian philosophy, I mean, and giving you a, a wide-ranging, uh, comprehensive, still survey of how gender has been understood throughout history, all the way up to 2015. It's an, an exquisitely researched project, but it's written by a Roman Catholic, by a nun no less, and it gets almost no attention whatsoever in Protestant circles. Even with the feverish interest in gender in our day, you get very, very little evidence of, of people looking at uh, what Alan has done. Julian Marias, another Roman Catholic figure who's done very influential and important work on gender, again, as an example of what's out there. But Mary also accents certain problems with Roman Catholic models of sexuality and gender, such as their understanding of the why of Mary's virginity, even as they are very capable in demonstrating the that, the fact of her virginity. Why virginity is important for for Mary uh, is itself a very important question for us to think carefully about. Celibacy, why her virginity is important, becomes an argument in Roman Catholic theology for why celibacy is important. Does this reflect a problematic view of sex itself? Yes, Protestants have long said. Mary as woman and Mary as mother take us a great deal down the path of understanding why Roman Catholics think of woman and mother the way that they do in in distinctively Roman Catholic terms. 
Of course, related to this, onto the next page, is how Mary is related to Christ. And one of the classic or standard reasons given for rejecting Roman Catholic Mariology has been that she is so magnified, she is so extolled, it takes away from the glory of her son. It takes away from the glory of Christ. Now, at the level of lay Roman Catholic piety, there's no question, no question that this happens. Absolutely not. Even at the level of their teaching about Mary, I think there's good reason for seeing this as problematic. But it's also a question we're thinking a little more patiently about, since it's not the case, it's not the case that everything the Roman Catholic Church says about Mary is basically just a scaled-down version of Christology, although it's often treated that way. This is a little bit too simplistic a way of handling it. As I told you before, there's some biblical material driving the thinking about Mary, which comes to an end, and then there's the Roman Catholic leap instead, where, as we've suggested, what should be said about the church is instead limited to Mary. That said, within the biblical world, they do properly recognize that Mary is not simply like everyone else, and among the most reckless of Protestant and evangelical handlings of the Mary question are those who overreact so strongly to Roman Catholicism that they take away from Mary what the scriptures themselves give her, that she is blessed in terms of her special privilege. In fact, all generations are expected to call her blessed for it, and that she is not, as a result, simply to be confused with everyone else in the biblical story or in all the church generally speaking, but there is some way of speaking properly of her having a special role and functioning in some way as exemplar. This will be especially the case in John's Gospel. Mary as a figure of the church is, I think, where a lot of the the greatest and most exciting work remains to be done. Roman Catholics are especially sensitive to the positive relationship between Mary and the church, but in my judgment, they read it precisely in the opposite direction or the wrong direction. If we were simply to reverse the terms, we would understand the church is being described by way of Mary rather than, as Roman Catholics tend to assume, the church is in fact the figure of Mary. It's almost as though the church is there to to provide a corporate version of what Mary is individually. If we were to reverse that, and what is true of Mary is a figure for what is true of the church, we both keep Mary and the church, but in proper proportion and understand what the scriptures are doing. All right, with that in mind, shall we look then at those six themes, and I'll just very briefly note what is happening with them. We mentioned immaculate conception, bodily assumption, veneration, intercession, celibacy, Miraculous preservation in part to mother of the church. Where do they get these ideas from? Well, here are the short version biblical themes which in Roman Catholic Mariology drive the conclusion in each of these six cases. Immaculate conception is the result of reflection on Mary as the new Eve. We'll go through each of these in turn. The bodily assumption of Mary is the conclusion of seeing Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant. Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant. We might be thinking, well, that's really far-fetched. Well, give it, give it a moment. Give it a moment or two, and we want to see why they would see that might be the case. Thirdly, veneration, intercession. 
by way of Mary as queen mother. Where in the world might that come from? Well, we'll talk about that. Celibacy is a consequence of perpetual virginity as they see it as a, they see it as biblically required. Many Protestants have seen it as at least biblically permitted. That's something we'll talk about as well. The miraculous preservation of Mary in part two is because of Old Testament prophetic descriptions, especially in, in Isaiah, of the Messiah's coming birth happening quickly without labor pains. And so they look at the Isaiah passage and say, well, that must be what's happening in Mary's experience. She must then have been preserved in part two. And then finally, the new Rachel theme from Genesis forward, especially as Rachel is taken up by the prophets as a figure for the Israel as a whole, as a figure for God's people in mourning, weeping, in connection with a massacre, in connection with great loss. They take this into seeing Mary as a Rachel-like mother of the church, especially uh, mother of the suffering church. Now, before we look at the first example, Mary as the new Eve, one of the interesting phenomena in the history of Mariology in Roman Catholic terms is that at the piety level, the lay worship and piety level, which we suggested has driven a lot of their conclusions, especially in the last couple hundred years, there's a theological issue going on that is fascinating for those who know the history of the doctrine of the atonement. Mary is seen as the motherly figure who as motherly is tender, is compassionate, is patient, is a listener, and is approachable. What mother doesn't want to care for their child and protect their child and, and be compassionate toward their child. Motherliness is that, that very complex of virtues of compassion, patience, wisdom, and so on. And the, the mother bear-like protectiveness, right? But that has the power it does within Roman Catholic piety because behind it is an image of Jesus as unapproachable. Jesus is the stern one. He is, if you will, the law in its unflinching requirement, absolute requirement. You cannot simply approach Jesus, but Mary can approach him for you. And Mary can approach him for you in a way that makes him accessible to you if you come by way of Mary. Mary is the compassion of Jesus to you. So if you're in need, you don't go directly to Jesus Christ. You go to the compassionate one. You go to Mary, who can bring your requests to Jesus and persuade him in a way you can't on your own. There's a whole theology of holiness, of justice, of law, of forgiveness, of compassion that is at work here in Roman Catholic piety. It's wildly destructive of the Christian faith. It completely distorts the gospel. It ignores biblical material itself on the motherly compassion of Jesus himself. And it elevates Mary to basically softening God toward us which is immensely destructive, very, very dangerous. And yet this is the lay and popular reality on the ground for Roman Catholics who extol Mary and pray to Mary in context of need. You pray to her in context of need because she's the one who can go to Jesus for you. Now, where would they get that idea that Mary can go to Jesus for you? Well, we'll talk about that. There's actually some biblical material they're working with when they say that. They distort it along the way, but knowing where they, how they get there 
is important for us to, uh, to account for ourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules, at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone. Thank you.